Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Welcome to Lucky Episode 13, everyone. It seems like only yesterday we launched this adventure. And now, thanks to you listeners, by one count, we are in the top five of all podcasts worldwide. Alex, what do you think of that, buddy? Uh, I've got to tell you, it's 5%, not five. But other than that, you know, your math's always being your <laughs> central key strength. Uh, Brian, boy, I wish we were the top five podcasts in the world. Uh, but we're in the top 5%, and I'm very proud of it. I personally feel thrice blessed. First our ranking of our podcast. Thanks again, listeners. Secondly, Alex and I back together through the magic of Jeremy's production. You might have thought we were in the studio together on our last episode, but in fact, we weren't. Alex was on top secret assignment, everyone. Now we're back. Alex, welcome back. Thank you very much. Good to be back, Brian. And finally, I couldn't be more excited, Alex, to welcome our very special guest today, Mike Cole. Mike with a Y, Cole. First things first, though, based on Mike's guidance that ancient Greek warriors likely drank, if anything, watered wine. While I'm not committed enough to the podcast to add water to a wonderful bottle of wine, I am enjoying an amazing bottle of Pinot Noir from one of my favorite vineyards, Willamette Valley Vineyards. And FYI listeners, I don't ordinarily like Pinot, but this is a great bottle. And if you are in the lovely hills near Salem, Oregon, anytime soon, please go. Full disclosure, I like this wine so much, I'm a small owner of the company. Well, I don't have anything like that to plug, but I've gone one further than you in the commitment stakes, as usual. And I am drinking a dry white wine from Crete. Uh, Katrina and I were in Crete uh, in the summer and um, drank a lot of wine, as is your constitutional duty when you're on the island. And I'm going to mangle this pronunciation, but any Greek person can correct me. Pyrovalikes, Pyrovalikes is the white wine that I'm uh, drinking. Reasonable retail price, very um, rounded in taste, a um, little bit of minerality to it as well. Um, and we liked it a lot when we were on holiday. So uh, with this episode, with our um, Greek theme, it seemed the very best thing to drink. Very well played, my friend. And would you say that the notes on the nose are insouciant but not too far from innocence much like myself uh <laughs> <Exactly> <laughs> it must be right. pure of a likeies, i suppose that's how a greek person would pronounce well it. we're going to ask our expert in a minute now look everybody i knew that mike cole had had a full first career in several three-letter agencies for the u.s government as a coast guard commander and in the nypd and i met mike when we were both involved in the cbs reality show hunted about five years ago episodes still available on amazon Mike was the talent, and I was 100% behind the camera, which is really just good news for everyone. What I didn't know about my friend Mike Cole was that Mike also is the author of 10, count them, 10 published novels, nine of which I admit are unread by me, but the one I've read is amazing, well done, and has published two books now about ancient Greek warfare, including The Bronze Lies, Shattering the Myth of Spartan Warrior Supremacy, which makes Mike maybe the perfect possible expert to talk about Alex's story today, especially because Mike's book devotes seven full single space pages to the Battle of Plataea, which we're going to talk about. Welcome, Mike. Well, thanks so much for having me. I, I wanna make one uh, comment on uh, alcohol. 
um, is you, you said a lot of lovely things about Greek wine. My one experience with Greek wine is with Retsina. Uh, right. with less, <laughs> less right. wholly positive. Yeah, right. Which and I the best the best comparison I can make is it's like drinking a tree. That's the best the best <laughs> way I could say it. But I will say this: after you have like two or three glasses, it tastes pretty good. <laughs> well, Mike, based on my experience with uh, Retsina, I'm going to paraphrase someone about the 1960s. If you remember drinking Retsina, you probably didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay that's outstanding uh, let's get right to alex's story but mike do you want to set the historical stage for the plataeans so the battle of marathon in 490 bc if we're going to set the stage for this we have to go back to some political ma geopolitical machinations that occurred just prior to the battle king cleomenes the first of Mar of uh, sparta had foreign policy ambitions in the Attic Peninsula where Athens was. And this actually resulted in, uh, in uh, a Spartan army marching on Athens and half of that army melting away, resulting in a new law that the, both the Spartan kings, Sparta had a weird, uh, sort of unusual dual kingship, which I think a lot of people don't know about, but both of the kings could no longer take the field at the same time. That law resulted in this humiliating defeat of literally half the army turning around and saying, yeah, we're not interested in this fight. But that threat to Athens forced Athens to reach out to the nearest regional power who they felt could protect them from Sparta. And who was the biggest dog on the block in, four, in uh, well, this is prior to 490 BC, but in the um, prior to 490 BC, who was the biggest dog on the block was Achaemenid Persia. Right. This is the Persia of Darius, um, uh, the same Persia of Xerxes, who had come to Thermopylae in 480 BC. And they reached out to Persia for assistance, for alliance, and they gave tokens, earth and water, which, as we've all seen in the film 300, is this token of submission. Now, one of the things that I think people don't understand is that to Darius, that's an emotional commitment. That's a familial thing, right? There's a lot of othering done of the Persians when we talk about the Greco-Persian Wars, where we sort of, you know, dismiss them as Machiavellian. You know, there's a lot of, um, and frankly, a lot of it is, is kind of bigoted, right? It's East versus West narrative. But the truth is, is that from what we understand of Achaemenid Persian culture, Darius took his responsibilities to his subjects very seriously, right? When he took earth and water from the Athenians, they became his people, and he became, I think, to look at it from an Achaemenid perspective, almost a father to them, right? But wait, 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 Mike, Mike. So let me ask you a question about that. Sure. So when you speak of this familiar relationship, is that similar to what Vladimir Putin feels about Vladimir Zelensky? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> little brother. Like, so, like, so, all right. So you, you make a good point, right? It is partly Machiavellian, it is partly geopolitical, it is partly self interested, but it is also different, right? The Persians are not the Russians. Um, and there is a lot of evidence that shows that, you know, this was an emotional thing for, for Darius. This is an emotional thing for the Persians. So when the, the existential threat of Sparta evaporated and Athens realized that they were okay, and then they pitched in during the Ionian Revolt. So the Ionians, of course, are Greeks who lived on the west coast of Turkey, subjects of the Achaemenid Persia, Persians, who felt a kinship to the Greeks, right? They have a common there are, they are Greeks, but they have a common language, they have common religion, common customs, even though you know, the Ionians live across the sea on the coast of Turkey. Well, when the Ionian revolt happens, the Athenians pitch in and they burn Sardis, one of the major satrapies, the, the sort of capital cities of one of the Persian subject satrapies to the ground. 
So this is not just a normal attack on Persian hegemony, right? This is a betrayal. So they went to Xerxes with earth and water. They submitted, they became part of what, excuse me, not Xerxes, what Darius probably thought of as a family, right? And now they're burning down his capital of one of his satrapies. So that was a real emotional betrayal to him. And so of course- Kind of, kind of, kind of reminds me of the War of 1812 when the British tried to burn down Washington, DC. <laughs> I'd go to a good chunk of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah they, fair they, enough. They did a fairly good job, right? So, but <laughs> but so you can see that, you know, they're not having that, right? There, there has to be a reprisal, right? There is this now terrorist state to the West. And there's a couple of things here. Some of it's emotional, but some of it is also Darius simply thinking like, hey man, if I let this stand, if I let people who give, give earth and water and submit to my suzerainty, burn down the capital of one of my provinces, Everyone's going to do it. And he certainly this right reminds about that. me. This reminds me, Mike, of Alex's favorite line from the Al Capone movie. Go, I, uh, I'd love to hear it, Alex. Uh, which one are you talking about? Who would pretend to be Sean that? Sean Connery. Not? No, no, no. Sean uh, Connery. Bring in a knife. Bring in a bat. Uh, bring, bring a knife to a gunfight. Yeah. 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 I mean, well, so, and, and, and of course, Adras does it, right? <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's an initial mission that's unsuccessful, um, but the, uh, he, he comes with, what we know to be a vast army. Now, I don't want to overstate this, right? Like right. popular historians love to skew the story of the Battle of Marathon. As Especially contemporary popular around. historians. Correct, yes, correct. And we know that there was roughly 10,000 um, at least heavy infantry present on the Greek side, right? Of which a very small proportion of them were, were the Plataeans. Um, and against them, you know, the Persians are it supposed to be like some insane number. And the only honest answer is we don't know the exact number. We know it was lopsided. Um, right. and, and that, that gets us to the battlefield, but let me shut up now because I, 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 I know you wanted me to just sort of give the background and I want to get, no, uh, you should, I want you, I want you before every story now, Mike, because you've got, you've got <laughs> a new gig. you make me look a lot smarter. You, you give this erudite explanation of, of the story that I've cherry picked from, from history. I thought you did that really well. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks, the Mike. story of Plataea is a, a happy one. And then it's a sad one. Um, Separately to what Mike was just setting out in the 520s BC, this little city-state called Plataea asked the Spartans for an alliance because they were afraid of the Thebans. And mischievously, Sparta told them to ally with Athens, which was an enemy of Thebes. And Sparta was very angry when that alliance was actually agreed. You know, careful what you joke about, Spartans. Mm -hmm. And so then fast forward to the point that Mike was making. Athens is now at daggers drawn with Darius and the Persian army. Darius and his army march westwards, determined to burn Athens to the ground. That's the oath that Darius has sworn. Um, but, you know, it's plainly bad news for all Greeks, not just the Athenians. And led by um, Miltiades, the, the great uh, general, the Athenians march to face the Persians, and, and they know they're going to, it winds up, they're going to meet them at Marathon in, in 490 BC. And, and in order to do that, they'd sent for help um, uh, they sent for help to other Greek towns, but no help came, uh, not even from Marshall or not Marshall, as we might find out from Mike, uh, Sparta. Mm -hmm. And the Spartans said they were busy um, observing a festival, couldn't possibly march. Training, whatever. Week. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. Far too late. Uh, so great. <laughs> Thanks, Sparta. Camped alone and frightened on the plain before the night before the battle, the Athenian sentinels spy these dust clouds in the distance. Of course, they fear it's the second Persian army. They fear it's that the Persians have been reinforced by someone else, uh, oh, by, by another, another set of Persians. But it was the Plataeans. 
In Athens' mm. hour of need, the plucky Plataeans from their tiny city-state had come panstratia, mm. my favorite, one of my favorite words in Greek, which means mm. you know, drop everything, send everyone. All 1,000 of them had come. And their contribution to the might of Athens might have been small as Mike was setting out. But for Athens to no longer stand alone against the enemy, I think, meant a great deal. And the Athenians and the Plataeans fought bravely alongside one another. They fought as equals that day. They faced a far stronger force. I mean, Mike's right. Who knows how much stronger, but it was definitely stronger. And the battle was won by the Greeks. That's part one. Part two. Later on. So far, so good, Alex. So far, so good. As you might have expected, given my um, what I said at the start, the Plataeans were attacked by the Thebans and they were besieged by the Spartans during the Peloponnesian War. And they fought for two years and they sent a force to break through the besiegers to try and get help from Athens, which diminished their small numbers yet further. And those who joined that enterprise, they were thought to have volunteered for a suicide mission, but they actually made it through. Theban lines to their allies, only to find the Athenians declined to come to the aid of the Plataeans because they feared a broader conflict that might result between them and the Thebans and the Spartans. And so after a long, hard winter, starved of supplies, unrelieved by Athens, the Plataeans surrendered on the basis that they would be treated fairly. And instead, the Spartans conducted a trial. Each man was asked, in turn, had he helped the Spartans and their allies in the war? Of course, the point of Plataea's position was that they were allied, as Sparta knew better than anyone, to the Athenians. Thus, every man, every Plataean answered no. Mm. They were asked one by one, and one by one they were executed. And I try to imagine the stoicism and the bravery to be the 200th man in that queue, Um. waiting for your turn to deliver your honest and honorable answer before the sword and then apart from those few who escaped the siege and the forlorn breakout to Athens uh, living on as the stateless sons of a vanished city Plataea's men were dead their women and children were sold into slavery the city was razed to the ground so that no two bricks stood atop one another and the land was given to the Thebans and the point I make in the book is this what's the lesson to be drawn from the sad fate of the Plataeans I, I say it's this all friends are great when they need you. Only some friends are great when you need them. Mm. Such was Indeed. the end of Plataea in the 93rd year of her alliance with Athens, as Thucydides said. And that's oh, my indeed. story. Well, first, Alex, I want you to know that <clears throat> I consider you the kind of friend to whose aid I would come when you need it, not just as a fair weather friend on my side. Mike, I don't know. We're out of touch a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> a bit, it's a bit much to ask, Brian. I, and also, I'm always out here in New Orleans. Uh, like, I, I, if you're in jail and you have one phone call, I can be your lawyer. That's as far as I'm going. I'll but take second, it. I'll take it. But second, I can't help but note that, at least based on the history on which you based your story, Alex, the Athenians, in part, refused to come to the aid of the Plataeans did I mean the Spartans? I meant the Spartans, didn't I? No, 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 you, oh, okay, you had sorry. it right. You had it right. Second, I can't help but note that at least based on the history on which you based your story, the Athenians, when the time came, refused to come to the aid of Plataea because they feared a broader conflict might result. And I can't help but note, and by now our listeners know exactly what I'm going to say, that NATO today find ourselves in much the same position with sure. regard to Ukraine. 
But of course, we're not in a formal alliance like NATO with Ukraine in a way that I'm not doing down your point. I think what Putin's done is disgusting and he's a war criminal. I'm just pointing out that, you know, Plataea had a formal alliance of to, Athens would defend it and um, and Ukraine isn't in NATO. But hey, you know, one of the reasons I was looking forward to this um, episode so much was that I, in my book, told stories that I like. And I get the opportunity from time to time, like today, to turn to someone like Mike, who's a real expert and say, how did I do? And what did I miss? Mike, <laughs> right. over to so, you, Mike. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to, to be able to weigh in. So um, your listeners have probably already figured out I don't get to, invited to parties much. And <laughs> one of the reasons is that I, I'm kind of the killjoy, right? Look, these stories from our ancient past are extremely inspiring. Um, and mm. that inspiration has value. And I, I would never poo-poo someone taking a, a lesson from history that's galvanizing or inspiring in their regular life, even if it isn't strictly true. Myths and legends have a role, right? right. And, and just crapping on them is not, is not useful, right? Hey, but, hey Mike, let me, just, yeah. let me just add something right there to that point, which I think is really important. So our listeners know I'm, a, I'm PK, preacher's kid, and I won't tell the whole story, but in college, I just happened to be roommated that's a word, with very combative, very committed people of different religious faiths. And they were constantly arguing about whether every jot and tittle of the Bible is true. And my answer was, I don't care. If there's something we can get out of the stories to help us live our lives better, maybe they're true, maybe they're not, but they're good stories and they help us. Yes, this is the point. If any of you have read or seen the film Life of Pi, that's the whole point of that uh -huh. movie or book. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, you go through this whole movie. I'm going to ruin it for everybody. Another reason I don't get invited to parties. But you yeah, go but Mike, it's whole... like it's like it's like 10 years ago. So if you haven't seen it by now. Yeah, it's your, it's your own downfall. So uh, I but like, you know, you, you go through this whole story where he's on the boat with the tiger. And then at the end of it, you know, you figure out that, no, there was no tiger. He was just imagining that to save himself from the pain of what actually happened in that shipwreck. And in the end of the book, they're they, you know, they're like, well, which story is true? And he goes, which one do you like better? Because either way, I was shipwrecked and I suffered. Well, the one with the tiger is better, even if it isn't true. My point is, is that my point is, is that even if a legend, even if something you read in Plutarch or something you read in Herodotus or something you read in Thucydides is not strictly accurate, if it inspires you, if it galvanizes you, it has value. And what I do as an historian who, who wrecks myths, it's sort of like how I make my living. At no point do I do that in a malicious way, right? I'm not interested right. in making people feel bad. I'm just interested, well, in the, in the case of the bronze lie, I was deliberately setting out to demolish the myth of the Spartan super warrior, spoiler, they were not particularly tough at all, um, because that myth was being used by the far right, the political far right around the world as a galvanizing symbol and as an organizing principle. And I wanted to attack that. So I actually, you know, I had a specific motivation in telling the truth there because in that I blame case, Gerard, I blame Gerard Butler, by the way. Uh, that guy's just making a buck. Although I want to point out <laughs> that 36-year-old fit Gerard Butler, who stars in 300, the real Liana Das fighting at Thermopylae was he was in his 60s. Right. So like, well, who's this guy, right? <laughs> um, but oh, but to but to your the, the lessons. Look, I think that the lesson you draw, Alex, is a great one, and I think that um, that it has. It has important points about self-reliance. It has important points about understanding um, the, the, the pressures that consequences in politics can put on people. Um, uh, you know, the NATO uh, example is a great one, right? But even that, I think a better one is social media cancellation, right? 
when, yeah. when, you know, when someone gets canceled on social media, a lot of their friends out of necessity can't stand with them, right? Because yeah, you could stand with your friend, but then you're going to lose your job. You know, you're going to lose your ability to function in society. You may get kicked out of the school that you're in. Like it's, it's a real thing and a real traumatizing yeah, thing. And understanding that lesson that, that you put out there, Alex, is that has real applications there. But no, it is not strictly true, right? And there's a few points um, I wanted to uh, uh, point out here. So the first is um, you talk about a martial Sparta, and I, it, it just isn't the case. One of the enduring myths in ancient history, and particularly surrounding ancient warfare, that I wrote a whole book, The Bronze Lie, to demolish, is the idea that Sparta was any more martial than anybody else. They weren't. Um, and the evidence is just undeniable. Um, in fact, if you look in the center of the book, I, I actually keep score, um, not exhaustively, but pretty comprehensively. And you find out that Sparta did slightly worse than their peers in the ancient world. We also find out that you know, this idea of Spartans being professional warriors, they absolutely were not. Certainly not in any conception of professionalism that we think of today. It's better well, Mike, to think, go ahead. Mike, let me interrupt you there. I, uh, by the way, everybody, I really enjoyed uh, The Bronze Lie. It's, it's, a, it's a great read. Oh, thanks. Um, it's, it's, it's history, but it's very entertaining as well. But mm. part of your point, though, is they weren't super warriors and they weren't strictly professional soldiers like we would think of it today, like you were but they were more of those things than anyone else in Greece, right? They were more disciplined and more organized. And they were more disciplined and they were more organized because what they were were aristocratic dandies who didn't have to work. They had, <laughs> that's the truth. That's well, the like truth. Alex, like Alex. Much like myself like again, twice exactly in an episode. Like right, so the reality of it is, is that they had a slave cast, right? The helots, and I wanna be careful here, like, you know, they were certainly not unique in their slavery. Um, the Athenians were, were pretty bad themselves, but they, not their particular, us. yes, that's true. Their particular implementation of, of their slave system enabled a very small minority at the very, very top of society, the homoioi, the peers, to not have to deal with agricultural labor, to not have to deal with artisanship, which was taken care of by second-class citizens called the perioikoi, who were not slaves, but still not you know, fully voting members of the body politic. But we have zero evidence that they use this free time to train for war. We have evidence that they use that time to exercise and do sports, but we, have, we don't have a single piece of source material, not written and not, picked and not imagery, that shows them drilling in formation. We don't. Um, we certainly know from Thucydides- That's fascinating. So and from all, all we hear about the fast the, the, about the formations and the phalanx and so you this is not, not wasn't the case well well here's the thing we the, the, the here's the thing about history is you have to be careful you have to say i don't know right you, the lack of data is not evidence either way so we have xenophon and thucydides telling us hey these spartans are very disciplined and organized on the battlefield okay but what we don't have is evidence of how they got that way so what we have to do is speculate to get there. We do have that wonderful quote from Aristotle, which I include in the book, which is that the Spartans are not better than other Greeks at warfare because they train particularly hard. The Spartans are better than other Greeks at warfare because they train at all. <laughs> right, that was my point, yeah. Exactly. Right, right, so but the point being is that in the very amateur, really amateur nature of hoplite warfare in ancient Greece, which in the interest of time, I won't go into a, a, a lengthy description of it, but, the, but this idea, Marshall Sparta, I just got to throw a flag on that play, right? I would say <laughs> that, that, these, that you're, what you're dealing with is it would be like having the Hiltons, you know, or the Trumps show up 
to fight. Like these are people, they, they have so much money, they can do whatever they want. And, and so perhaps they are using that time to drill, but we don't have specific evidence that they are. That's but Mike, the Mike, well, hold on, Mike, yeah. just, just eyeballing the really pretty comprehensive to me chart in the middle of your book mm -hmm. in roughly 500 years, there's two, I couldn't count it, but there's two single spaced pages of battles. So they must've gotten better with, they, they fought all the time, right? Yeah, but they, well, but I mean, look, you know, they, you're talking across five centuries. Um, they fought all the time, but so did everybody. I mean, that's not, yeah. a, that's not right. unusual. You have yeah. to remember that, that we live now in the modern world in one of the most extensive periods of peace in human history. In fact, this war that we're now experiencing in Ukraine is this massive bucket of cold water in our face. But prior yeah. to the Peace of Westphalia in the 17th century, like this was just that was what was for dinner every night. Well, and, 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 and let us all say a prayer or whatever we believe in that we didn't just happen to grow up in the bubble. And we're in now we're getting back to real history. I, I really I worry about that a lot that you and Alex and I just happened to live at a time that was anomalous and our kids won't. I, you know, I look, I can only pray for the same thing. I don't have an answer to that. I, I, I hope. And I think and I hope and so much of ironically how, how this war is really being fought on Twitter um, is actually gives me yeah. faith because so much of the reality of what warfare does and what it looks like is now in everybody's face all the time, mm -hmm. uh, I think may change things. Um, but yeah, I, I hope we're not in that bubble. I, I want to get back to Alex's story and your critique sure. of it. But, but I did want to just make a note to our listeners. I hope I have this right, Mike, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. that Part of your evidence, maybe the most compelling part to me, that the Spartans were not captured by all those values, heroism, lack of worshiping of money, non-corruption, training, is that you have poets who are exhorting them to do that, which you suggest, and persuasively to me, suggests that they weren't doing it already. Right. Exactly right. You don't you don't need to write a poem admonishing people to do X or Y if they're already doing it. You just accept it. Like I don't you know, you don't see a lot of people writing poems out here. I mean, unless the little kids brush your teeth. Like we all just assume you brush your teeth. So I think that's exactly right. But the, but I think the more compelling evidence is the sources. Look, the Spartans lost all the time. In fact, when you look at that list of those two pages, like they surrendered, they ran away, they lost, like, come on. Like it's the only way you could believe that these people were super warriors is by ignoring the source material that we have, which is in fact what many people do. And I'm, and I'm not interested in that, but I will say this, I wanna say this, there's so many sporting efforts and so many exercise efforts that use the Spartan motto sports teams to inspire people to achieve an idea. And there is nothing wrong with that. That's wonderful. But I do think it's important uh, at least in this case, yeah, to point out that it's not true. Well, let's get back to my favorite subject. What did Alex get wrong? Okay. So, uh, so Alex, well, it's not that Alex got things horribly wrong. It's just yeah. that there's a little more nuance, I would add. So um, in your so, face, Brian. <laughs> so so with with at Marathon, Alex, you, you talk about how the Greeks were outnumbered. Yes, they were, but they were not outmatched, not even close. In fact, uh, and now it's certainly portrayed as this massive upset victory. And I'm sure the Greeks were terrified. And I'm sure that, um, you know, look, Achaemenid okay, Persia by any stretch of the imagination was the biggest dog on the block at the time. Yes. But when you understand the tactical details of how the Persian army was organized and how they fought, 
and you understand how Greek hoplites fought. And of course, I'm, I'm anglicizing that. Uh, so True. if anyone's a Greek person, please forgive the mispronunciation. Uh, you realize that there, it, it was a lot even more even than you think. And, and I'll just give you a couple of quick pointers. If you care about it, um, Herodotus gives a list. I call it the ship list. Uh, it's what most scholars call it, of how the Persian army was, was organized. But the core of the Persian army, the Medes, the Elamites, um, the Cushites, um, the Circassians, the, the sort of uh, Irano, um, uh, 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 or sort of Iranian steppe, uh, Iranian plains people that formed the, the core, the Medes, um, they had a similar armament that we have some idea about. And that includes short spears with no butt spike. It includes very little armor, perhaps armor in the front row that is either uh, made of layers of linen or leather with some kind of bronze fish scale, maybe a helmet, maybe not. Most of the Persians wearing what they call the tiara. Yes, the same tiara that same <laughs> word for the for the thing that we that um, uh, women will sometimes wear to um, fancy occasions. Uh, but it was really a cloth hood that tied over the face, so very little armor. But if they fought with an axe, some of them, if they had um, Scythian or Saka background, they'd have a light axe called the Sigaris, um, quite light, in fact, uh, a small sword, almost a knife called the Nakinakis. Um, but mostly their main weapon was the bow. And this is a very powerful composite bow, not like uh, what, what you would call a self bow, drawn back to right. the corner of the mouth, and released with a thumb hook. And this thing is powerful. It can drive that arrow um, through some pretty serious stuff. And the, the, while, there are, while if you read Herodotus's account of the Persian army, you'll realize it's extremely diverse. There are, there are Arabs there, there are people from Ethiopia there, there are people, I'm using the modern term of Ethiopia, the people from the Black Sea, they're all armed differently. They are clearly, clearly have different battle doctrines. But elephants, elephants, mastodons, tigers. Probably not those. You're thinking of the 300, <laughs> um, which uh, is sort of a crime against history, albeit a very beautiful. I know. I'm, I'm helping you make your case, Mike. No, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, so That's Brian's um, definition of helping there for you. Right. <laughs> but so, so what happens when your main weapon's the bow, right? You you have these, what they call sparabara, which are shield bearers, and they bring forth these giant wicker shields, probably about the size of a front door on your house, and they make a wall out. And then about nine ranks deep behind them are these lightly armored guys with these incredibly powerful bows and they rain arrows. And, and you know, you know that quote from Herodotus, the so many arrows that they will blot out the sun. Well, that's good. We'll yeah. fight in the shade, right? It's a great mm -hmm. quote. Um, well, so these arrows and we have, we know how these arrows were made because if you go to the uh, Acropolis Museum in Athens, which I encourage all of you to do, you will see the excavations that Spirit and Marinados did of the Colonos Hill in Thermopylae and you will see these Persian arrowheads. They are very small. They are three-sided, they are made of bronze. They are about the size of a nine millimeter bullet. They're not big at all. Um, hmm. And they are attached from what we know, not to wood, but to reed shafts, which means that they are very light and they are designed to be fired at an arc from these incredibly powerful bows and to rain down on opponents who in the Anatolian plain, around Babylon, the, you know, Egypt, the places where the Persians were fighting, these people aren't wearing a whole lot of armor. And they and once you get that those arrows rained on you, well, you know, you know, there's not much you can do about it, right? For a shield, you know, you might have something made of wicker, you might have an animal skin thrown over your arm. And this method of warfare has worked really well. And I want to add, I am grossly oversimplifying, right? Just for the purposes of this conversation. Um, there's obviously a lot more to it, but I'm oversimplifying here. Well, so so this sorry, works, right? sorry, 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 Mike. Let me let me right. just add a question about that, that I yeah. imagine a lot of our listeners are, are asking themselves. 
Well, first of all, the whole concept of linen armor seems a little ill-conceived to me, but put that aside. Um, I, my feeble understanding of history is that one of the reasons why Henry V was so successful at Agincourt is they had long-range archery, if you want to call it artillery, and the French didn't. But this sounds like the forces had that a thousand years before. Yeah. So, and actually, um, I want to plug my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Michael Livingston. He um, he's an amazing historian and a mentor. If you think I'm at, at all a good historian, it's because of him. We I are do. co-op. We just got back um, from uh, Greece, where we're uh, researching a book called *The Killing Ground*, a bi biography of Thermopylae, which covers all the battles of Thermopylae, not just the one uh, that the movie *300* was made about, all the way up to World War II. So he has he has a book on Agincourt, which will be coming out soon where he talks about specifically what the English longbow did. Um, and it, does, it didn't do what most people think it did. It actually shaped the battlefield and funneled the knights into the muddy ground where the English men at arms were able to dispatch them. And Mike, if you're listening, and I told this wrong, I apologize. Um, uh, hopefully, But hey, correct. retweet it nonetheless. But Mike, retweet it nonetheless. Yeah. Yes, that's, yes, please, that's, please. That's how um, I've, I've kind of understood it, that the role of men-at-arms at Agincourt, and we're jumping around, but we always do on this podcast, it's kind of, yeah. if we have a skill, that's it. Uh, <laughs> that If I understood the Agincourt legend myth, it was precisely that the the humble you know, pikesmen and the humble you know, men-at-arms had a much more significant role than um, the narrative that we tell um, about the battle. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm now practicing medievalism without a license. When I say men at arms, <laughs> I mean a knight on foot. I don't mean anybody humble. I mean, we're talking the richest people in, in English society. Um, I will say that the English longbowmen, uh, it seems, had a different role. But I really, I, I, I want to shut up because I feel like I'm, when I, you know, I, I, I'm very careful as an historian not to speak about hey, things. Yeah. Rare it is, rare it is that I'm the man of the people and someone else is the elite, <laughs> effete boost, booster of the upper class. But yeah. go you, Mike. You own that okay. brand. That's fine. Well, I, I, I'm just out English me. I'm just. Let me just put the question crisply, as I used to do in depositions 25 years ago when I took them. Sure. Uh, is it possible that archery did not evolve particularly significantly between? 400 BC and no, 1400 no, it is, that is absolutely not possible. Archery, okay, good. Archery, like all military stuff, evolved very significantly. What see the problem is you can't stray into a problem in history we call technological determinism, which is the idea that any specific technology is responsible for anything. The key to remember oh, here. Oh, Mike, to, I oh Mike, I can stray into it very easily. <laughs> you can do as you like, uh, but the my, my point is is evolution, not revolution. That's the argument you want to remember. Um, so, so archery was always evolving, but you have to remember that the Persians to this point, what little experience they've had fighting Greeks was fighting Ionian Greeks on the Turkish coast. Right. Um, so this is their first time fighting, you know, across Aegean Greeks on the mainland that we know of. Um, and they certainly had intel and they certainly had recon, but that method of these light read arrows with these small tips had worked great for them on in different battle spaces. But now they're facing Greek hoplites. Mm -hmm. And Greek hoplites, look, we all have this idea. First of all, hopla, everyone thinks hoplite comes from the word hoplon, which is the word for the shield, which isn't even the word for the shield. The word for the shield is aspis. It comes from opla, which means all of the gear, everything, the armor, the spear. It just means that you are geared up for war. Um, and ho Greek hoplites in general, not always, because a lot of it was wealth determinated. The minimum requirement was the shield and the spear, 
I'll tell you about the shield in a sec because that's really important to this. But you know, if you're a witcher, you might have a bronze helmet, you might have a bronze or linen. And I know, my, uh, Brian, you questioned the value of linen. Trust me, if you layer enough layers of linen and you glue them together correctly and you cover them in wax, uh, they'll stop quite a bit. Um, well, I think there's some sort of pornographic joke here, but I'm not going to make it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. What Rare moments of restraint from Brian coming. <laughs> Carry on, <laughs> Mike. You're doing great. So, and then you have a pair of bronze greaves, right? So you're pretty well armored, right? Okay, right. but, fair. The, but the critical thing is the aspis, and this is the round shield and that every hoplite had to have. This shield is like two and a half feet across. It weighs about 22 pounds. It's not center grip, which is unusual for the time. It has what's called the argive grip, which is to say that it straps to your arm across your elbow. You have a handle on the edge and it's concave so you can hang this massive thing on your skeleton. In other words, hang it off your shoulder so that your mm -hmm. arm doesn't get tired. Because trust me, holding 22 pounds out. And I've punched with, I do reenactment too. I've punched with these things. I've knocked people to the ground with these things. But mm. that's for, that's a burst of movement, right? You want to hang it on your shoulder most of the time. You're going to get tired real fast. Well, and it's they're made of wood planks. And they're made of wood planks often crosswise to each other with usually like leather lining on the inside that holds it all together and adds integrity. And then maybe a sheet of bronze across the front. Well, here's the thing, like that's pretty hard to get through. That's pretty hard to get through with an iron arrow. It's really hard to get through with a bronze tip, small arrow being fired uh, at a high trajectory attached to a reed shaft. So mm -hmm. my point is, is that, yeah, you have vastly outnumbered Greek force, but you have a real weapons and armor mismatch between them. And um, look, this is not a settled issue. There's a real policy of, sports, of source material. People debate this all the time. But when I boil this down to simplicity, right? What I see are 10,000 Greeks against maybe, maybe, let's say on some crazy notion, it's probably a lot less, 80,000 Persians, many of whom are you know, rowers that are still on the ships or, or on horse transports trying to make a run, an end run around. But right, still it's, the forces it's even, split is the other point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, even if it's four to one, right? And they are firing, they are raining showers of arrows down on these Greeks, and they are not making an impression. Every right. once in a while, one gets through a gap and gets in someone's leg or in someone's throat. Yeah, people drop here and there. But basically, no. And then the Greeks cross that. The Greeks realize, okay, we're coming in. They cross that distance. We, you describe the charge, right? They thin their, they've had to thin their lines. And they hit those Persians like a runaway truck. And let me tell you something. When you're putting mm -hmm. your ass behind a 22-pound shield and you have a nine-foot spear, and that's what you've been, been training with, and it's made of ash, and it's got a nice solid tip, and it's got a strong butt spike in case the front snap part snaps off. And all of that bronze on your body is adding mm -hmm. to your weight. And in you come to a dude who's holding a wicker shield. <laughs> and this dude is wearing almost no armor, right? right. And, and that impact occurs and that line breaks. And what's behind them? Guys with bows in their hands. Yeah, that, that doesn't sound really forgiving to me. It now, does not. Now, right. So now I'm, I'm grossly oversimplifying. There's a lot more to this. A lot of this is in dispute. And again, I don't want to rob the Greeks of what really was an upset victory, but I just want to provide that context. You know, I, it was a, I, I don't want to say it was even Stephen, but it was more even than I think people give it credit for. So th this is well super told. interesting, Mike, really and, yeah, and very well explained and, and definitely will enhance our listeners' understanding of, of that battle. But I guess two things. One, 
is there anything that you're aware of that undermines Alex's main point of the story about a friend in need as a friend indeed? That's question one. Two, and I think we'll probably do a whole show on this at some point, Mike, and I hope you'll join us, just the reliability of history in general. I know you've just been to Greece. You've seen these battlefields. Is it possible? And I'm asking an absurd question because I want our listeners to get this. Is it possible that the Battle of Thermopylae or the Battle of Marathon or the Battle of Plataea, the battles of Plataea, never actually happened at all? Uh, I mean, I, I, I would say probably not. I think we're pretty confident they did happen. Um, look, nothing is certain, especially the further back you go. The most critical thing any historian can do and it's the one thing historians almost never do. And it's mm. the one thing I'm committed to doing. And so is uh, Dr. Livingston, Mike Livingston, who I just mentioned, is being willing to look at the camera and go, hey, based on the data we have, we can't know. We don't know. Historians are terrified to say that. And we're terrified to say that because if all we say is, I don't know, what do you need us for? Right? Might as well, well flip burgers, right? And, and um, just, to just, sorry, just to expand that point, I would say that's a lesson that, at least American health officials could have learned across both the oh, Trump and the Obama administrations. Just oh, say God. the science is not clear. Yes. Yeah. And it's, and it's something like nobody likes, nobody wants to be unsure. But the one mantra that Mike taught me and I repeat it to myself every time I sit down to write or to research is that the important thing is not to be right. The important thing is to get it right. And that means sticking to the data. Historians have to be, look, in my years as an intelligence officer, in my years as a law enforcement investigator, in my current job doing uh, 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 computer criminal investigations in the private sector, I have to be guided by data. I cannot form opinions uh, out of whole cloth. And I have to caveat what is supported and what isn't. And very, very carefully. Otherwise, like, you know, the wrong people could go to jail. Like, it's that kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. So and well, I think- Historians have to have that same standard. They have to have that same level. Sorry, so Brian. Alex, so, well, no, I was just going to ask both of you, Alex and Mike, uh, what do you think or what do we know from history to the extent we can know was the aftermath of Alex's story? Obviously, Plataea as a city-state, as I understand it, yeah, they were done. structurally was wiped out. Yeah. But there must have been a few Plataeans around and what was the impact of this battle on the future of Greek history? Alex, I've been, I've been talking a lot. Do you want me to take, to take it back? No, well, I, I mentioned the few that were involved in the breakout to Athens and um, their line was, they, their, their race was run. They lived on as, you know, stateless sons of a, of a vanished city. Um, and that aside, of course, Thebes repopulated um, Plataea, but they repopulated it with their own. And, um, and that was that. Um, I also think that if you look at it from a broader context, this is this is nothing new, unfortunately, right? Like you see these shifting alliances and these shifting focuses. You know, you certainly see Athens and Sparta at each other's throats throughout the Peloponnesian Wars. And then you see them allying afterward against Thebes as Thebes arises um, as a major power. The end result of all of this, I think, what, what most historians will agree is that the inability of Greece writ large all of these dif different policies, these different city-states, to recognize that the co their common language, their common um, religious traditions, their common culture, gave them enough commonality to function. They, they, they formed together in leagues, but never together as a state. 
And of course, what did that do? It kept them divided and it kept them weak until a cohesive state to the north, namely Macedon, uh, arise, arose and, uh, and, and ended essentially Greek independence. And then eventually Rome, of course, coming behind. So I think like as sad as, as Plataea's story is, it's not unique particularly. No. And even some cities were refounded. I mean, we have the Mycenaeans you know, reduced to slavery, reduced to heritage by the Spartans. And then of course, as Sparta star wanes, you have the, the, the Thebans, you know, refounding the scene, right, later on. Um, but really the end result of all of this was to allow Philip II of Macedon and then later um, Alexander the Great to step in and sort of make Greece a, a Macedonian holding and then for Rome to follow suit later. So did, Mike, has anyone put that point better than Ben Franklin when he said, we, if we don't hang together, we'll all hang separately. <laughs> Join or die. That wonderful. I, th I, th I think I, I think I botched that quote, but you know what I mean. Uh, uh, I, I, I think I think your point is the Greeks were severely damaged historically because they were never able to completely work together. Right, because they were always at war with their ancient enemy, the Greeks. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, look, I I, um, uh, I think I think it's an excellent point. And and look, if, if you want a real example of it, let's. Let's move to something a little uh, more medieval since we seem to have been talking about it. It's that wonderful story from King Lear where he takes the bundle of arrows. He takes and he, he breaks in each breaks arrow them. separately yep. and then he puts mm -hmm. the arrow together in a bundle and you can't, right? It's harder to break. Um, and I, I think that that's a wonderful um, visual metaphor for what we're discussing. Reminder to our listeners, we're going to have a live event in New York City on 6 June, 2022. And don't tell anyone but we have located an amazing historic Manhattan bar to record the episode. We're going to have some great guests. You should email us at hiddenhistoryhappyhour at gmail.com and we'll give you all the details and we hope to see you there. See you next time. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Core, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers. Cheers.